Welcome to the weekend edition of the Daily Stoic. Each weekday, we bring you a meditation inspired by the ancient Stoics, something to help you live up to those four Stoic virtues of courage, justice, temperance, and wisdom. And then here on the weekend, we take a deeper dive into those same topics. We interview Stoic philosophers. We explore at length how these Stoic ideas can be applied to our actual lives and the challenging issues of our time. Here on the weekend, when you have a little bit more space, when things have slowed down, be sure to take some time to think, to go for a walk, to sit with your journal, and most importantly, to prepare for what the week ahead may bring. Dell Tech Fest starts now. To thank you for 40 unforgettable years, Dell Technologies is celebrating with anniversary savings on their most popular tech. For a limited time, only save on select next-gen PCs like the XPS 13, where you can make the everyday easier with Windows 11. Plus, curate your dream setup with great deals on select monitors, mice, and must-have electronics and accessories. When you shop online at dell.com deals, you'll have access to leading-edge technology and free shipping on everything. That's dell.com slash deals. Every business is constantly asking themselves, what's a thing I can do to take my business to the next level? It's something I'm thinking about, of course, over at Daily Stoic and Daily Dad and the Painted Porch. And one of the tools I use for just that is LinkedIn Jobs, because LinkedIn Jobs knows that your success depends on the team you surround yourself with. That's why LinkedIn Jobs has created the tools to help you find the right professionals for your team faster and free. You might have just listened to the episode I put up where I was given a talk at LinkedIn back in 2017. So I've been using LinkedIn a long time because LinkedIn isn't just another job board. It has a vast network of more than a billion professionals, which makes it the best place to hire. And hiring is easy when you have that many quality candidates. It's so easy. In fact, that 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. We've hired multiple people here at Daily Stoic from LinkedIn. You can post your job for free at linkedin.com slash stoic. That's linkedin.com slash stoic to post your job for free. Terms and conditions apply. Hey, it's Ryan Holiday. Welcome to another episode of the Daily Stoic Podcast. I have something on a little shelf in my bathroom mirror that I stare at every single day. What it is, it's basically, it's a, I, I got this from an antique dealer. It's a chunk of a Victorian tombstone. I don't know how the chunk came to be for sale or what circumstances led to this. I don't want to think about it too much. I hope it was for ethical reasons, but you can only see one word on the tombstone and it just says dad. To me, it's like this immediate reminder when I see it in the morning, when I see it before bed, that life is short, that we don't have forever, that everybody dies, including parents. Doesn't matter how much you love your kids. Doesn't matter how successful you are. Doesn't matter how rich you are. We all go. And this is why we can't take time for granted. This is why we can't waste time. I don't know if you can hear this, but that is my Memento Mori coin, which I have in my pocket. That's my other sort of Memento Mori exercise. I think it's crazy to think about. I think we made them three years ago. It might even have been four years ago. But this idea of Memento Mori is something that I don't want to ever lose sight of. Because to lose sight of it, is to risk wasting the time that you do have for certain, which is right now. And so Memento Mori is obviously this really core stoic exercise. And it it's, was transformative for, for me in my life. I, I feel like I've gotten to a place where I'm actually acting as if I live on borrowed time, 
I'm actually seizing the moments as if they're as they're in front of me. I'm not rushed, but I'm also not entitled. Um, I'm not in denial, but I'm also not in fear. And that's when the Stokes talk about memento mori, you could leave life right now, let that determine what you do and say and think. That's where they're trying to get. And so when we first made these coins, I didn't know if it would help a couple people. I knew I wanted one for myself. You know, here we are all these years later and thousands of people carry them all over the world. I see people post photos of them. I, people come into the bookstore. Or I, you know, I used to see them at events and they'd pull it out of their pocket and show me. It's just, it's been an amazing experience and I've gotten as much out of it, out of anyone. And I, I think you will too. You can check them out in the, in the Daily Stokes store if you want. Uh, I'll click the link in today's episode. All of this leads in to today's guest who uh, I've actually known for a long time. I've been a longtime reader of his column in The Guardian. Uh, he's a great writer. We interviewed him on Daily Stoic a long time ago uh, about his book, The Antidote, Happiness for People Who Can't Stand Positive Thinking, which is great. It has a whole chapter on Seneca. He's a, a great writer. He lives in New York City. He's a Brit. And uh, his new book is very well suited to... Stoic thinking. It's called 4,000 Weeks Time Management for Mortals. And it's a sort of a philosophical uh, exploration of time and time management. But time management, as the subtitle says, in light of the indisputable, undeniable, unavoidable fact of death, that life is short. We don't know how long we're going to get. We do have some sense, we have some sense of averages. And so what should one do with this life? How do they manage that time? How do they think about it? Uh, obviously, for, for obvious reasons, you can imagine why I wanted to talk to Oliver, and I feel like he delivered. It was a great conversation. You can check out his new book, 4,000 Weeks Time Management for Mortals, anywhere books are sold. Enjoy. Four thousand weeks. What, what, what does that mean? What, give, me, give me why that's such an important number. 4,000 weeks is the approximate length of an 80-year lifespan expressed in weeks. It's the expressing it in weeks that, uh, well, I think when I first did that calculation, I kind of had a brief miniature panic attack. But I think it's kind of edifying and salutary to think in, to think in those terms. So, so 4,000 weeks is how old? It's just uh, under 80 years. Just yeah. Well, what I thought was fascinating too, so people go, oh, I'll, maybe I'll live to be longer. You were talking about like the oldest woman who ever lived and right. it's not really that many four weeks. I, you can get to like 6,000 or something if you if you really break all records. Yeah. Yeah. I met a guy here in Austin is, and I've talked about him before. His name was Richard Overton. He died, I think, two years ago or three years ago. And he was at that time, the oldest man in the world. He died at 112. But I just did the math. That's that's 5,800 weeks. Right. When so I first, yeah, I, I, I started like asking friends when I first did this calculation, you know, to sort of guess off the top of their heads without doing any mental math uh, how many weeks they thought the average person could have. And you were getting like six-digit numbers. But uh, it turns out that 310,000 weeks is the approximate duration of the whole of human civilization since the ancient Sumerians of Mesopotamia. So it's kind of, it's wild when you think about it in these terms. You would also think that this would be, 
you'd think we'd intuit like like there's there's some things we're good at guessing because it matters to us, and some things we're bad at guessing because they sort of were invented recently or or whatever, right? Like yeah, yeah. Uh, if you saw a crowd of a million people, how good would you be at guessing that evolutionarily you'd have no, you know, no uh no reason to ever be able to to comprehend right. how many people that was. But you know, we're pretty good at let's say measuring distances because there's a reason to do that. You'd think that understanding how much time we have on Earth, uh, that that uh, having some awareness of our own mortality, you'd think that would be something we'd be good at. I guess I think that makes sense, but then I think the the problem is just that it requires it's so uncomfortable, right? It it, it is more the stakes feel higher, um, and the desire to sort of psychologically scuttle away into a more comforting but less accurate view of things is sort of overwhelming because it it's mortality right i mean no yeah. one ever said that was an easy thing to confront yeah i mean i guess 4000 weeks the the weird thing about about that number is that it's a lot and also not a lot like you could i could you can look at it and to, it's like those pictures like depending on how how you look at it, you can see two different things. I guess sort of depending on how you feel that day or what your frame of reference is, that's a lot or it goes by like that. Right. And I think that actually what you're saying there gets to something really deep about the whole concept of like time and being finite with respect to time, which is like there's something very strange in the way that we think about it as something we're entitled to in the first place like right i mean you could think of 4000 weeks as an extraordinary amount compared to never having been born but we tend to go around thinking that it's a radically shockingly tiny amount compared to some eternal life that we apparently thought we were entitled to or that just a couple generations ago that number was half and then before right. that it was like half again right exactly yeah um yeah, uh, Seneca says, uh, you know, it's not that life is short, it's that we waste a lot of it. I think that's really what you're saying when you say 4,000 weeks. It's to sort of, you, you talk a lot about, the in the book, you talk a lot about the benefits of being aware that there there is an upper limit on this. You know, that, that even if you took 5,800 weeks as your reference point, it doesn't fundamentally change the conclusion you're supposed to take from that, which is that every week is relatively precious. Right, exactly. But I, I think the other thing that I'm always at sort of, I'm really at pains to try to get across is I don't think any of this is a recipe for kind of living your life in this kind of white knuckle, incredibly self-conscious. Am I making the most of it? I've got to seize every day. I've got to, you know, do, uh, you know, I've got to go base jumping every weekend. Otherwise, I'm yes. not really sucking the marrow out of life. I think that it's a question of kind of fitting your ambitions to the reality of your situation. If you can really do that, it's it's incredibly liberating and sort of a relief because you're no longer setting your standards by the standards of, of, of eternal life or having limitless time or, you know, being able to do everything. And when you sort of accept tough choices are going to be part of the equation, 
And, well, no, I, I, I want to get yeah, into yeah, all of that. Yeah, but yeah. I, what I love about your writing, and you <laughs> must feel it when you're sitting down and doing these books, is that because you because I noticed you and you did this in the antidote too. You quote all the best selling books like in that category, and you're usually sort of quoting them. I would say somewhat critically, right? As you just said, this sort of white knuckling approach to time management, or you look at some of the the, the happiness books out there in, in the antidote, you must see what those people are selling. That there's that there's probably more sales in telling. It's not what people want to hear, but telling them the sort of very unnuanced like uh, here is the opposite way to think about it. What I love about your books is that you really are exploring it kind of from both sides and the 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 conclusion you come to it, you don't say oh, it's four thousand weeks yeah uh live as if you're dying right this minute um you you're you're saying uh it's complicated you you have to get the most out of every second but you will also not get the most out of every second if you're consciously trying to get the most out of every second right exactly in fact i would say that kind of approach of doing it really consciously it, it still is oddly a kind of denial of reality, right? It still is setting the standard of a meaningful life at doing something more, doing something kind of superhuman yes. uh, instead of instead of full-heartedly human. Um, so, yeah, I think the only thing that isn't nuanced and complicated here is that is the facing reality part. I think, you know, life is better to the extent that you can face the reality of the situation the predicament that we're uh, that we're all in well no that's a nuance that that definitely appears in the stoics too marcus realist most of all where he's sort of like let's say you are the most productive person and you do live a really long life you still die and you still don't get to take any of it with you and you'll still be forgotten shortly after said death so <laughs> you know that like there there I, I agree that the idea of like i'm gonna i'm gonna i'm gonna get I'm not going to waste a second of this time. It doesn't get you to a different conclusion. The story still ends right. uh, with with the fade to black, and and that's it. Right, and and you actually wouldn't ultimately want it to be otherwise. That's the thing that I take a little bit of that from Seneca, and I think it it it, it recurs in a modern philosophical sense in this work of this philosopher Martin Hagland, who I quote in the book. Who he quotes a, a headline from a an American Catholic magazine, which is a question, which is um, heaven, colon, will it be boring? Just this idea that actually, if you really had a kind of literal kind of eternal life, that's not certainly what all Christians mean by that idea. But if you did, it would be terrible because nothing would be at stake. And the answer to the question, should I do this or that with today or this hour would always be like, who cares? Because <laughs> um, there'll always be another day and another day and another day. So there's actually something about the the limit that when you get to the end of it, when you get to the bottom of it, like, we should be grateful that, that, it's, that it's that way. Yeah. And weren't there a bunch of like Greek gods that were like sort of cursed with immortality? Like, isn't that, isn't that go back pretty far to the idea that like, I don't think you actually want what you think you want here. Right. Right. I think so. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Well, so so we'll talk about sort of productivity and, and efficiency in a bit, but uh, this idea of time uh, and time's passage and the invention of time, to me, uh, you know, you can sort of study it philosophically all you want. 
and then you go through what we've gone through the last year, and it really does radically reorient your sense of time. I'm just curious how, I, I imagine most of the book was done before the pandemic, but how how has this sort of interminable lockdown and and then sort of semi-pause and then moments of uh, pausing and unpausing, how has that changed your conception of time? Well, just as an aside, I could totally talk about how the lockdown and the pandemic caused this book to be completed finally after uh, after a <laughs> while of not being completed, and it wasn't because I had more time on my hands. <laughs> That's the, that is not what happens when they when they close the preschools uh, and your childminder can't. Come oh around. yeah, of course. But, um, but it was but it there was motivation there for sure. I, I think that um, you know people have been reporting these incredibly strange phenomenologies of time uh, under lockdown. The sense that the days are racing by, but also dragging in a way that doesn't seem to make. Uh, sense in any straightforward way. I think a lot of it has to do with the uh, the loss of conventional anchors in time, right? The, the ways in which we measure duration all seem to be gone. There's also this thing that I've been really fascinated by about this sort of combination, I guess it goes to the heart of what I'm saying in the book, but this combination of seeing that time is really precious. I mean, you know, a pandemic with a very high death toll will, will do that, if nothing else. Right. And at the same time, this strange, possi- this strange kind of glimpse that we could do things differently compared to how we had been doing them, right? So, yes. you know, you're forced to work from home instead of the office, say. You may love certain aspects of that and hate certain aspects of it. There are, there are things that people missed that they didn't realize they would miss, but there are also things that they really didn't miss, like, you know, commuting or uh, having to stay at the office to a specific time of day just to show that you were at your desk or something like that. Um, and ways in which those constraints, the fact that like if you wanted to do something as a, for a leisure activity, it was going to have to be like tending the plants in your backyard because everywhere else was closed. Uh, certain kinds of constraints that, that people found themselves valuing. It's difficult to talk about, obviously, because plenty of people have had such a terrible experience. But I think there has been that sort of I sort of think of it as possibility shock, you know, it's just this kind of sort of like, hang on, all these things that we took for granted as things that have to be part of the daily schedule, apparently don't because they weren't for months and, and life went on. Did you watch that movie? I think it came out right at the beginning of the pandemic called Palm Springs. I didn't, I'm afraid. Do you know about it? No. Oh, it's really good. It's an Andy Samberg movie and he, he goes to this wedding and he gets somehow sucked in, it's it's a comedy, but he gets sucked into this like time continuum. And it's sort of like Groundhog's Day, Ooh. where the same day begins over and over and over again. Or if he dies, it starts over. Right. And I've thought about that movie a lot during the pandemic, because there is an element of, it, it, it's, uh, I, and we, we would joke about this with my kids and be like, what are we going to do today? And we'd say, you know, same thing we do every day, Pinky, like from Pinky and the Brain. It, nothing. <laughs> We're just going to be here. Um and it's totally screwed with my conception of time. Whereas like it, something could have happened two months ago or 18 months ago, and it all feels equally close together and far apart. Right. Right. I mean, that speaks to this thing that we, you know, we, we don't, rec- we don't mentally record time per se, right? We have to have proxies of, of yeah. how much new stuff is happening as a, as a sort of proxy for duration. And so it was all so new, but it was all incredibly new in a in a very monotonous 
way. There was an interesting difference, if, if you're interested, between how I saw the UK handling this and the US. I'm British, but live in the yeah. United States. And we very quickly here in New York got into a basically a rhythm. It was, you know, it had its many downsides and its constraints, but but things were after the first couple of months were kind of basically the same. And into that sameness, we could build a life with rhythms and routines and things we did regularly and people we met in the park for play dates once that was feasible and et cetera, et cetera. In the UK, they have sort of changed these very complicated sets of rules have come in and changed every like month, as far as I can tell. As soon as they relax a certain restriction, everyone goes completely insane, like you know, crowding into as many uh, as many people into a small space as possible because now they're allowed to. And there was a sort of there's been something crazy making uh, there, I think, about this kind of imposition of these rules about how you can spend your time that just keep constantly shifting. And so I guess this is maybe a point against what I was saying before, but there was something about the the rhythmicness of the yeah. life that we got into here that was kind of, for large stretches of it, pretty peaceful, really. Got a quick message from one of our sponsors here, and then we'll get right back to the show. Stay tuned. With everyone fighting for attention, how can your business stand out and connect with customers? Easy. Get Constant Contact. Constant Contact's award-winning marketing platform has helped millions of small businesses stand out, stay top of mind, and see big results fast. Constant Contact makes it easy to promote your business with powerful tools like email and SMS marketing, social media posting, and even events management. These tools would have been super helpful to me when I was growing The Daily Stoke, when I was writing my first book, and in fact, have been right? The Daily Soak is built around email marketing. That may well be how you heard of this very podcast. With Constant Contact, you'll reach new audiences, grow your customer list, and communicate more effectively to sell more, raise more, and fast-track growth. So get going and start growing your business today with a free trial at ConstantContact.com. Just go to ConstantContact.com right now. Constant Contact, helping the small stand tall. ConstantContact.com. Every business is constantly asking themselves, what's a thing I can do to take my business to the next level? It's something I'm thinking about, of course, over at Daily Stoic and Daily Dad and the Painted Porch. And one of the tools I use for just that is LinkedIn Jobs, because LinkedIn Jobs knows that your success depends on the team you surround yourself with. That's why LinkedIn Jobs has created the tools to help you find the right professionals for your team faster and free. You might have just listened to the episode I put up where I was given a talk at LinkedIn back in 2017. So I've been using LinkedIn a long time because LinkedIn isn't just another job board. It has a vast network of more than a billion professionals, which makes it the best place to hire. And hiring is easy when you have that many quality candidates. It's so easy. In fact, that 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. We've hired multiple people here at Daily Stoic from LinkedIn. You can post your job for free at linkedin.com slash stoic. That's linkedin.com slash stoic to post your job for free. Terms and conditions apply. Well, and, and maybe it's actually a much more natural way to live too. I think I, I, I was thinking about this a couple of times during the pandemic. James Stockdale, who was a prisoner of war in Vietnam, yeah. I think it was there for seven years. He would talk about the people that got crushed were the optimists, like the people who thought like, <laughs> right. they'd be like, uh, and actually, I had uh, Dr. Edith Egger, who was a Holocaust survivor. She was oh, talking yeah, about- Oh, yeah, 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 the choice, yeah. Yeah, she was talking about, she had this friend who thought, that, you know, like, March 1st, we're going to be out. And she was like, and that person died on March 1st. When, oh. Like, they they got to a point where they they were hoping at this 
sort of conditional future, which never came. And I think there was an element of sort of, if you could accept the reality of your circumstances, again, to go to your point about accepting the reality of death, then you can, you can build a life around that. If you are keeping yourself in this sort of suspended, uh, state or this temporary state or this waiting for X, Y, or Z to happen state, not only are you very vulnerable if that does or doesn't happen, but you're also, that's also coming at the expense of the present moment in front of you. Right. Absolutely. I I totally believe that about um, hope in many manifestations. I have a whole riff on this at the end of the book. Um, Yeah, it's, it's, it's the hope that kills you, as the uh, English football fans say, and probably various American sports fans as well. Yeah, yeah. No, and the other thing I thought of during the pandemic, um, James Salter, the the novelist, I think he was a fighter pilot in Korea, and then he ended up writing these great novels. But his memoir was titled Burning the Days, and I thought that was a beautiful expression. And I thought yeah. about it during the pandemic for two reasons. So one... That is what a lot of people are doing. Even though you only have 4,000 weeks and however many days that is, we're just burning them never to return. But I also thought of this idea as like, you know, you can also burn things for fuel or heat or light. And so it's like, how do you you use the days, right? That doesn't mean you're using them some fit of productivity, but like, I think Seneca talks about like, what's the return that you got? Like, what, what did you get? for what you gave up. That's really the question. Right. I think a lot of it has to do with a kind of, I mean, I'm going to start sounding sort of psychoanalytic here, which is something I do, but that a lot of it has to do with a kind of inner holding back from being where you are, if that makes sense. Right. Mm -hmm. It's like, it's like the, and this speaks to the, the productivity stuff as well. I think, you know, if you're sort of holding out for something that is actually not within the gift of humans to achieve, it's actually more comfortable because because day, moment to moment, you don't have to feel the discomfort of being right here and constrained and by reality. But since you are, you know, inescapably and non-negotiably constrained by reality, it's a fundamentally kind of alienated way to live. And yeah, sort of dropping back down into where you are, uh, I think is is ultimately always going to be the way to create meaning in the present. Do you, uh, you mentioned your kids. How old are your kids? Uh, I have one son. He's four. Almost uh, four. I have a, I have a four-year-old also. I, I thought that was the other weird thing. I mean, to, I, I have, I have a four-year-old and then I have a, uh, a two-year-old and at, at certain, at what, at some point during the pandemic, it got to the point where he'd spent more time in it than out of it, which was right. a very sort of surreal experience. <laughs> but then also just this idea of like, not only has the pandemic changed my conception of time, but also having kids has changed my conception of time. Whereas like four years, if you told me I had to go do some job I didn't like for four years, that would feel like an eternity or four years of a prison sentence. That would feel like an eternity. But then also like, it feels like my son was born like two months ago. Do you know what I mean? Like kids sort of screw with your perception of time as well. Yeah, totally. And I mean, uh, part of what you're doing there, I think sometimes there's a lot going on there, but I think part of it is you're sort of slightly entering into what you imagine their experience of, of time to be, which for the first couple of years is probably something very kind of, uh, uh, similar to the experience of an enlightened Zen master, (laughs) but, but, um, then gradually, yeah, I mean, the, 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 
the proportion of um, our son's life that is represented by one week or one month is just it's just it's just so extraordinary compared to compared to someone like me. Yeah. Yeah. I said that to a basketball coach uh, in the middle of the pandemic where it'd been like four or five months of it. And we were talking about, he was talking about some of his, his athletes were getting really anxious and and having trouble with the sort of pause that they were in. And I was like, you got to understand even just four or five months here is like a significant percentage of their entire <laughs> life. You know, this is like 1%. You're at, yeah. For you, you're like, hey, can you guys just wait three months and then we'll <laughs> resume. But you're asking them to wait one percent of their life, you know, or, or whatever the the percentage was, I forget what it was exactly. But they they don't like as you get. That's a weird thing I've felt as I've gotten older, although I'm not really old or anything. But I've now done. There's now things I can be like, oh, I remember when I started that 15 years ago, or I remember that 10 years ago. So now I have the conception of 10 years as a block of time. Right. being an endurable uh, or or even um, relatively quick period of time. Yeah. But before you've done that, you have no conception. So like, yeah, you have a kid and you're like, uh, you know, you're measuring it in months. And then, then you're like, oh, when they turn three, they'll be doing X, Y, and Z. And you're like, three years from now? Like, <laughs> what? Like, I haven't done anything for three consecutive years in my entire life. So, right. I, you know, I think as you experience things, it does change your conception of time, which is, probably something to do with why older people seem to have a kind of a wisdom and a stillness to them that that we don't quite comprehend yeah i'm, I'm sure that's right you're um yeah i mean the other the, the, the you're reminding me of um the way that i feel like i often th- i mean i'm a i'm a bit older than you but um you know still sort of Fundamentally, the notion of the, the the sort of units of time that my life has comprised of so far are they're incredibly hard to get a handle on, sort of from the inside, and yet then all the time things are happening in the outer world that that sort of throw it into this kind of perspective. I finished writing a um, column that I'd been doing for the Guardian every week for more than a decade uh, last year, and one of the very complimentary emails I got from somebody said that they had grown up reading it. Um, oh. It's just absolutely extraordinary. They meant it as a compliment, but yes. I had a momentary existential crisis. The idea that I could have been doing anything for long enough for someone else to have grown up to it is um, is just, uh, you know, utterly discombobulating and totally out of sync with what I think going through my life about my relationship to time. Yeah, like 15 to 25. That's a, that's a good chunk of a life, let's say. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I I remember I had a conversation with someone a while ago. We were talking about like, what's an amount of money you can spend without having to run it by your spouse? That constitutes a, a large amount of money. Um, but I was also thinking that that we have that relationship with time. Like, what is a large amount of time to you? And that that amount changes as you get older. Um, right, right. You uh, you know, you first start dating someone and like, Oh, we've been together a month. We've been together you know, six months. And then you get married to someone, you can have a bad year or you know, marriage could have a bad decade, right? Like the amount of time that you're comfortable with changes as you get older, because you've had more of it. And then I don't, I don't know what the other factors are, but, but you do seem to get comfortable with larger amounts of time as you get older, which is kind of ironic because you actually have less of it. 
and it seems to be going by faster uh, to most people. Yeah, yeah, no, it is. It's, it's, it's fascinating. So let's talk about work-life balance, because that's something you talk about in the book. I had an interesting exp- uh, experience with someone uh, young who uh, was working for me, and um, they just started, and then they ended up, it, it ended up not working out, and they, they were saying, you know, I, it's just my work-life balance is, is not what I want it to be. And I was like, you know, you're 20 years old. You, <laughs> what work-life balance are you, not, a, not even that you think you're entitled to, what what work what things are you balancing you know um I, <laughs> right right what, what's your life <laughs> yeah um but but, but it, it is an interesting topic because i feel like some people their work life balance is totally out of whack and then other people it's out of whack in the other direction uh where they're just sort of as we said burning the days um as if they have unlimited time to figure out what they want to do in life to figure out what they want to apply themselves to and all of that Right. I think these are sort of two equal and opposite uh, bad ways to respond to finitude, right? And, and they're both sort of troubling when you're in it because you are aware on some level if you're sort of using up your finite time in a way that that feels too empty. And then, of course, you know, if you feel like you have so much to do that you don't get to pay proper attention to any of it, that that's um, that that's equally bad. I think the 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 point that I'm really sort of keen to try to drive home about all this is how often we get lured into trying to do things, trying to arrange time and use time in ways that are kind of inherently and systematically impossible. And the obvious way this manifests in the case of work-life balance is that it sounds like what you're talking about is a kind of uh, judicious mixture of all the different kinds of domains that, that bring meaning to a life. But what it seems for various different reasons to end up meaning is the attempt to sort of dedicate yourself with 100% uh, enthusiasm and energy to your work and also 100% enthusiasm and energy to uh, your life outside work in a way that like literally doesn't add up because it neglects the fact that in each different season of your life, there's probably going to be or maybe inevitably going to be tough choices to be faced and sacrifices to be made. And maybe there are parts of your 20s that are the right time for not um, doing much outside of work. And then, uh, you know, there are times after, say, just having a child when it might make sense to to really be failing to achieve everything you could imagine achieving on the work front for some time because something else is more important. So it's just that, it's just that understanding of finitude and that, that understanding that this isn't a council of despair, right? This is what you need to see in order to consciously build the meaningful life that you want to build. It's not, it's not about how you can't build that meaningful life. It's, it's actually the, the precondition for it is to see the trade-offs that you're making and make sure that, you know, they're the ones you want to be making instead of the other ones. Well, I think the other thing is like, nobody owes you work-life balance, right? So it's like, you know, you know, life is uh, nasty, brutish, and, sh- and short. That, <laughs> that's, that's like the sort of status quo. If you want work-life balance... I usually find you have to get yourself to some place of power or in demand or leverage that allows you to then design your life the way you want it, right? So that's one part of it. But then the irony is a lot of people get themselves into that position and then don't actually do it. You know, people talk about like, fuck you money, but then they get the money and then they're still 
you know, grinding away as ever. So it's like this interesting, yeah, it's this interesting tension where where nobody is going to ever give you a perfectly balanced life where you only have to work just enough to support yourself, have everything you want, and get to spend just as much time doing all the other things you want. And at the same time, the people who ostensibly could and have the leverage to design their life exactly the way they want it, you know, still seem to spend a lot of time in meetings that they can't possibly enjoy. <laughs> right, right. Because, yeah, it starts to feel that you've got to do that to, to maintain the quality of life that you think is a precondition for your happiness. Yeah. I mean, I suppose there's a third option, and this might be where, you know, me and you as the person from Northern Europe versus the Texas resident have uh, different perspectives on the world. It's like, I mean, you know, that there are countries that try to some extent to sort of impose this from the top and mm -hmm. to make, uh, you know, to limit work, not, not actually the UK as it happens, but, you know, European countries that try to uh, limit working hours, try to provide so much of a social safety net that um, it really is a lot more possible to do, uh, to, to have sort of have the balance that you speak of but again, there's still a trade-off because that is enforced. And um, I definitely recognize parts of my personality that, that wouldn't want to be in that situation, that, that, that wouldn't want to feel that um, there was an enormous cultural pressure to, to not spend you know, the next year of my life working morning, noon, and night in order to launch something incredibly cool. Um, so I don't think you can't win. You can just arrange the uh, sacrifices and trade-offs in in uh, in different ways that, that prioritize different different values, I guess. Got a quick message from one of our sponsors here, and then we'll get right back to the show. Stay tuned. Get your Easter shopping done without leaving the house with DoorDash. When the holidays come around and family comes to town, things can get forgotten. But with DoorDash, you can order your Easter baskets, chocolate bunnies, brunch must-haves, and so much more all in one place delivered right to your door. Actually, last Easter, I was in Annapolis. I was giving a talk and we realized we didn't have some of the Easter supplies we needed for the hotel room we were in to give our kids a little on-the-road Easter experience. And that's what we did. We DoorDashed everything we needed for Easter just like a couple weeks ago when I hurt my ankle, I door dashed an ankle brace and some medicine. You can get anything you need on DoorDash with so many local and national stores to choose from. You can take it easy this Easter knowing you can get everything you need. Whether you're looking for plastic eggs for your Easter egg hunt or needing an ingredient for a side dish, DoorDash can help. Order now and get everything you need for Easter on DoorDash. Use code DAILYSTOIC to get 50% off up to $10. When you spend 15 bucks on your next convenience, grocery, or retail order on DoorDash, that's code daily stoic order using doordash today for eligible users only terms apply look when i was first thinking of going to therapy it was a little overwhelming right what's covered by insurance how far do i have to drive when do they have appointments i mean when i first started going to therapy the idea of online therapy virtual therapy it wasn't even an option and now things are so much easier, so much better. Therapy can help you shift your perspective, find tools to cope in difficult times, be a guiding light. And Talkspace, specifically today's sponsor, can help with any specific challenges you might be facing. It's the number one online therapy platform with licensed therapists in over 40 specialties. And with Talkspace, you can easily find a therapist that you like. You can schedule virtual appointments and make the most of your time, which even as you're taking care of yourself, you always should try to do. And as a listener of this podcast, you'll get 80 bucks off your first month with Talkspace. When you go to Talkspace.com slash stoic to match with a licensed therapist, go to Talkspace.com slash stoic. 
Facebook to get 80 bucks off your first month. Show your support for the show. That's Talkspace.com slash Stoic. Well, and that's, I guess that's another part of this idea of the 4,000 weeks, which is that you may get 4,000 weeks. You might also get 2,000. Um, so, you know, how do you use the time while you have it to do the things that you want to do? And and so I think some, it's not that uh, some people are taking it slow, but I, I do, I do, tend to hear from people who are like, oh, you know, like things that I've done. Like, so I live on this farm and, uh, and people go, oh, I've always wanted to do that. <laughs> and it's like, okay, um, when, you know, when, when are you going to do it? It's not, right. it's not as if, uh, it's not as if I won the lottery and that's how I was able to do it. Like quite, quite the contrary. It was, is it was much cheaper than I thought. Also a lot more work than I thought. So do you actually, have you actually always wanted to do it or are you not being honest with yourself or uh, do you really want to do it and you're just not taking the the step to do it? So I think, you know, I think a lot of, like Seneca talks about this where he says, you know, it's wrong to think of death as something in the future. It's like death is also happening right now, um, right. that that you're dying as, as time passes. Um, so like, I, I don't know, let me do the math. How many, how many weeks have I already died? 34 times 52. So I've already died 1700 weeks. That's another way to think about it, right? Is like yep. uh, every week that passes, you died. It's not that you won't, that that gets subtracted from the total. It's just like, no, no, you you already died. Like, and I think, yeah, and I think that explains actually the the desire to not face that explains some of the behaviour you're talking about. There may be people who are very legitimately sort of biding their time just because they enjoy the way that they're spending their young adulthood. But I think a lot of people, maybe the ones you're referring to, there's something very pleasant about putting off these kinds of ambitions because you don't have to decide between them. In the book, I quote um, a little uh, a little bit of um, a line from the philosopher, the French philosopher Henri Bergson from his book, Time and Free Will, where he points out what seems obvious once it's pointed out that like the reason fantasies of the future and what you're going to do one day are so much more pleasant for so many people than actually doing things in the, in the present moment is because you get to... Um, hang on to them all, even if they sure. conflict with each other. So you can sort of believe in some dim and unarticulated way that you're going to, you know, get married and have kids and be a super engaged parent. And also you're going to spend your whole life on silent meditation retreats. And also you're going to, um, you know, take Silicon Valley by storm. Because in fantasy, like, there's no 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 math applies. You can you can you can have them all, um, and and it's the choosing between one and letting go of others that is that is the painful thing that people are avoiding. I think that goes to a lot of much more sort of day to day procrastination as well. Yes. actually. yeah. We, we act as if we have forever, and so that means no no hard decisions. And that's Seneca too, right? Is that you? You have all the fears of mortals and all the. Um, um, uh, desires yeah, like, of immortals. The desires of immortals. Yeah, exactly. Right, right. I remember yeah. I, I read a piece. You know what fire is? Like the fire community. I think it's uh, financial independence, retire early. Which, yeah, the idea yeah. is like you you live very frugally while you're in your high earning years as a young person. You know, this is mostly well suited to like computer programmers and stuff that are making 
$200,000 a year at Google, but you're earning a lot of money, you're spending no money, and then you retire at 30 or 40 instead of you know, 60 or 70. But I remember the New York Times profiled one of the people and they were like, well, you know, he'd retired at 30 or something. And they're like, well, what did you, what are you doing? Like, what are you doing with all your newfound time? And the guy was like, well, this morning I stared at the ceiling fan and I'm making my way through the Criterion collection. <laughs> and, and you're like, I'm not sure that's, one, I'm not sure that's better for humanity, but two, I'm not sure that's better for you than right. to be showing up at a job you, you're you good at. Um, so it's funny what we think we'll do if we had more time. A lot of times people don't have a great answer. Right. No, and I think what I envy about those people is a certain kind of, you know, getting the financial basic financial security thing squared away early. It feels very appealing. But I also know that some combination of um, human... Uh, the way human psychology works plus you know late capitalism <laughs> leads to this situation where it's you're never gonna most most of us i think are probably never gonna feel like we're like we're there yes um and that if i sort of if i were to have uh you know five times the savings and investments that i have now um that would not lead to the you'd probably be stressed lasting about piece that i that i believe it would yes exactly <laughs> Right. No, because whatever the number is, it's like it doesn't matter how much gas is in the tank. You're always like, how much how long can this take me? Right. Right. <laughs> I And and I think I, you talk a little bit about these people in the book, the sort of the digital nomads or the, you know, the the people that that make a living as a travel influencer or a YouTuber or whatever. They look like they have these amazing lives. And I think the pandemic, it was also sort of pulled the curtain back a little bit and you go these people have nothing, <laughs> um, you <laughs> right. know, it, not, not just like they physically own nothing, but like, you know, shit got real and they had to stop and they have no home, like not a physical house. They don't have a place, you know, right. They don't have a life. They don't have a routine. They're not tethered to the world or to society in any way. And I, it's always struck me that, that's probably kind of on purpose, right? That, that, that it's, it's, I think it was Epicurus that said that every man flees himself. There is this, it seems like a, a wonderful fantasy, but in fact is rooted more in a nightmare and inability to just actually sit down and pass time in your own company. Instead, you always have to be chasing the next flight, the next deal, the next, you know, I think Instagram photo. Absolutely. I think it also has, I think in addition, and it's kind of the same point extended, it's something to do with um, holding yourself back from, from relationship as well. Mm -hmm. It's something to do with kind of commitment phobia. And like, I've been there, like I'm not, <laughs> I'm not one to talk about, you know, I, I spent my twenties in some version of all of this, even though I wasn't like working as a digital nomad from overly glamorous locations. But, um, you know, that idea of like, it, it, again, it's to do with control and finitude. It's a different kind of finitude, not the amount of time, but the control that you either have or want over the time. And I think the the ideal of the digital nomad, and it may be something that a ton of people have to go through at one stage in adulthood, right? I'm not saying if you if that's you, uh, a given person listening, like you're bad, but 
there's something about that which absolutely champions the idea of totally sole individual control of your time as being the thing to aspire to. And then you find, right, that, that you know, you've, you've closed off all sorts of things that happen just because you live in a neighborhood and you have certain routes to it and things happen at certain times that you enjoy participating in, even though you didn't take sole control over deciding that that thing was going to happen uh, at that point. And sometimes, I, you know, I always think I was really fortunate. I came to New York City more than a decade ago now, and I was still, I think, in that kind of phase of... Um, I was one of the many Brits who come to New York sort of treated a little bit like a playground and to yeah. sort of not, not be fully committed to, and on the assumption that I would eventually have to sort of face the music and go back to my real life. And then a few years in, I realized that I apparently had a real life in terms of a, a relationship and friends and a connection to a place. And, um, so I was sort of tricked into uh, getting over my commitment phobia, which was uh, by the passage of time, which was which was brilliant because I'm I'm very glad it happened. But yeah. uh, it wouldn't have happened solely by me deciding to. Um, in fact, if I'd let my sort of ego dictate everything, I would have decided to go home, go back to the UK, just at the point when uh, a sort of commitment that was not based on full soul control was beginning to be a part of my of my life. So I'm sort of uh, grateful for events and circumstances in that respect. Well, I, I know a travel blogger who is sort of like, I've, I, what I really want to do is meet someone and get married and start a family. And it's like, that's what you say you want, but right. show me any of your choices right. that would, would make that not just reasonably possible. Show me one that, that where that could physically happen because right. you're not, right. you're, you're, in one place for more than, you know, two consecutive, consecutive weeks, you know? And, and so there, again, there's this idea, we say we want certain things, but perhaps because we think we can always get around to it, we never do that. We've quoted Seneca a lot, but I love um, his quote. He says, uh, uh, the one thing all fools have in common is that they're always getting ready to live always getting ready to live, meaning right, they're right. about to get started. They're going to do it tomorrow. Yeah. Uh, but of course, they they never do it. And I think the thing that I would want to say to like my former self or anyone who's a bit younger than me and, uh, and uh, in that kind of situation is like, you'll be amazed in almost all circumstances at how mild and tolerable the discomfort that you're avoiding is right yeah, yeah. i mean like you know big terrible crises and tragedies happen to people but that's got nothing to do with this that's nothing to do with your choices that they just happen uh, but putting that aside um you know the thing you're avoiding when you keep moving or don't settle down somewhere or don't allow yourself to go on a whole bunch of dates that might be really like a waste of your time or or, or you know live in a neighborhood that you don't might end up not loving etc etc like it's it's nothing like you can totally cope with that discomfort. It is not worth running your life on the avoidance of that kind of discomfort. Well, speaking of avoidance, uh, you talk a lot about inbox zero in the book and I've been at inbox zero for person for a long time. And also at some point, it's not that I gave up on it. I just, you know, I just, it was like, I had this breakthrough where it's like, I don't have to respond to everything. I can also just right. let it sit and delete it. And uh, if it's important, it'll come back. But like whatever the anxiety <laughs> that was keeping me in this sort of rigid system, but fear of the chaos that would happen if I was not 
disciplined about it all the time, I was, I was incredibly surprised at how nobody noticed and nobody cared and that it was entirely a construct in my head. Right. I mean, yes, if, if we, if we, uh, we would care less what other people thought about us, if we realized how little, how seldom they do or whatever, the, whatever, the, whatever the saying is. Yeah. Um, I think that's totally right. And I mean, you know, some people might be listening and think, well, okay, you're in a slightly different position. You've got a public profile. You're going to get more email than you can handle. And you've got a position of power when it comes to, um, you know, what what's not going to happen to you if you if you fail to sure. respond to them but i do think there's a sort of basic logic here that applies to absolutely everybody no matter their kind of profile status things like that you know we live in this world of effectively infinite inputs whether that's emails demands business opportunities and ambitions or just you know obligations if you're if if you're in a, a job that just just piles you up with obligations like if, if the demands being made on you by yourself or by the world are impossible, then you're not going to do them all. Like, I mean, that's what the word impossible means. And, um, and so some kind of trade-off, some kind of sacrifice is choice is already being made right by you in that situation, because there's no option, but for a finite human to make choices faced with infinite possibilities. Um, and all this is, is about becoming more conscious of it and sort of, thinking about the fact that you're going to kind of piss somebody off, but deciding that actually that's the, that's the uh, least worst option or, uh, you know, in the situation that you're in. So it all is just about becoming conscious of the way things actually already are so as to move more wisely through it rather than kind of, you know, giving up on something that might've actually been. Well, I think it's because your happiness book too, where it's like, you got to get comfortable letting stuff happen. You can't, you can't be in control all the time and touch everything and have it be your way all the time. There, as you said, there's trade-offs. Uh, you can't do everything and you have to make choices. And uh, if you can't do that, not only are you going to be overwhelmed, but you'll probably be unhappy as well because you'll right. be beating yourself up for not for being too late, two weeks late responding to something or, you know, not RSVPing no, just ignoring it or or going right. even though you don't want to go and you don't have to go and no one will care if you don't go. But, you know, you've imposed this on yourself. Right. Absolutely. And yeah, your, your life is going to fill. It's just a it's just a sort of logical entailment of that attitude that your life is going to fill with other people's priorities instead of your own. And of course, you know, plenty of people are in jobs where they have to give a lot of attention to other people's priorities, sure. but you don't, you don't have to collaborate internally <laughs> with the idea that that is going to somehow lead you to the, the, the sort of golden era when you're spending all your time on the things that you care about the most. And once you've sort of decided to secede from that kind of, um, that idea, you are in a stronger position, even if you happen to be, you know, right now in circumstances that are very structured by other people's uh, uh, demands. I love the thing that um, Jessica Abel, she's a graphic novelist and a creativity coach. Um, she, she sort of says, you have to do this thing that comes from personal finance 
and apply it to time with this idea of paying yourself first yes um you just have to decide to do some of the things that count to you the most and let the other chips fall where they may to some extent otherwise you know there won't be time left over at the end of the day end of the month um to do it because that's just you know it's just not how it works yeah, there's a meme I like where someone is like texting with their boss. They they've gone, they taken like a week vacation or they taken a you know a paid time off day, and the boss was like, "Hey, can you come in?" And they're like, "No, I'm off today." And the boss says, "Oh, we really need you. We're slammed." And the person just replies like, "Lol, that sucks," you know. And and you're like, right. "Yes, like you don't you don't have to do that," you know. And right. I like it too because it's not like a billionaire saying, uh, right. "You know, like I'm not going to uh, opt into society's constructs anymore." It's like you don't owe anything to your right. <laughs> to your to the restaurant that you work at, right? Um, right? Hopefully, you guys have a mutually beneficial relationship. But yeah, you have to put yourself first, and I think. Having kids was super helpful for me in that regard because if you are a driven person, if you're trying to accomplish things, you you probably have what I have, which is seemingly an endless capacity to deprive yourself uh, of things, right? To put mm-hmm. yourself last, you know, in uh, favor of the job or the work or the the piece you're writing or the place you want to go or whatever it is. But when you realize saying yes to this. I don't, like I'll get them now. It'll be like, hey, do you want to do this local radio interview at 4 a.m.? You know, blah, blah, blah. <laughs> and at a certain point in my career, I'd be like, I'm going to drag myself out of bed yeah. and do that. And, and it's, I don't think it's now coming from a place of privilege that I'm saying no, because I don't think it made a difference then. No, I don't think right. it made a difference now. It was purely right. ego uh, or something. But now I go, if I agree to this thing that's at 5.30 p.m., that means I won't have dinner with my kids right. and that is costly and I don't want to do that. And so when you have kids, it does, it's like you're, you're apparently be willing to waste the vast majority of your 4,000 weeks, but you realize you have even fewer weeks with these kids, especially when they are kids. And then that does provide some important context, I feel. I think that's, Absolutely right. Sorry, I don't know if you can hear these pings. Yeah, Um, I think that's absolutely right. And I think this is also where um, this is also where you see the affinity with the kind of fixed schedule approaches that like Cal Newport um, is, Mm -hmm. I suppose, most famous for advocating this idea that you sort of, um, you know, you you first of all fix the time you're going to give to work and the time you're going to make available to your family. And then you sort of make the work fit or not fit yeah. uh, inside that time. And it's the same thing with sort of quota systems. So you might, you know, if you were getting uh, asked to do a million of those kind of radio interviews that you talk about, you might say, well, I'm going to do X number of them per however long. And then and then when the quota is full, the quota is full. All of these things are just approaches that take, start with your limits <laughs> and start with an acknowledgement of your finitude and sort of, oblige your activities to fit into that instead of this kind of constant chasing of the uh, trying to fit everything in which just postpones the you know the, the, it makes you feel like there's going to be a moment one day soon when it all feels like it fits but but you never get there yeah it's it's taking your self-discipline out of it and making it like a rule that you just have to point to the rule and you say sorry i don't i don't do that yeah exactly i mean it also gives you a gives you a good uh 
alibi for if you're sort of conflict averse, it's also helpful because you're sort of like blaming the quota, which is weird yeah. because like you made it up, but all the same, <laughs> it does, it can have that effect. Yeah. No, people are oddly respectful of rules. Sorry. <laughs> I just don't, I don't blur books or, you know, sorry. Um, I'm on book deadline and I can't, you know, do this or sorry, you know, blah, blah, blah. Uh, they, they respect the rule, even if, you know, <laughs> thinking about it for two seconds would reveal that the rule is arbitrary and made up. Yeah, totally. So, so, uh, obviously the subtitle is time, time management for mortals, M- mortality being the, the thing, uh, not unlike death that hovers, hovers over the whole book and, and our conversation today. I've kind of been amazed going back to the pandemic, you know, people will think about like, what would I do if I, you know, found out I had cancer and then survived? Or, you know, what would I do if I was on a plane, it crashed, but then I survived, right? Like we think about what changes we'd make, like from a near-death experience. I've kind of been amazed at how many people have just decided to ignore the enormous near-death experience that all of humanity not just went through, but is currently going through on a day-to-day basis. I mean, there hopefully not, but there very easily could be someone listening to this who could be dead from the pandemic in two weeks or three weeks, right? Like you, you could be not yet infected, but uh, living on borrowed time, uh, at, just as we're all living on borrowed time in the larger sense. But it it is... It has been interesting to me how how people have just decided not to see this as a near-death experience. Some people have, but a lot of people haven't. Right, and I guess that really goes to the fact that there's some kind of well, it, it, there's some kind of choice involved in whether you do see things as near-death experiences. There's something that, that this is the power of the forces inside us that uh, want to not think about these things um you may have no option in the case of certain kinds of um you know diagnoses happening to you personally but but if you'll take any option you can to not have that thought about uh about things that are happening in the news and i think you can see that in a lot of the sort of political polarization around vaccination and lockdowns and all the rest of it in different ways uh people are prioritizing I think on both sides of the political spectrum, actually, people are prioritizing their desire to feel that everything's going to be totally okay over what might make uh, the most sense from a public health perspective or something like that. A big question, can you hold on to those epiphanies reliably, even if you do have them, you know, even if you, um, even if you do have them? And I, I, I don't know. And I think one of the things I try to the sort of practical side of this book is that I think there are practices and techniques and disciplines that you can sort of unfold into your life that will keep keep you going in this kind of limitation-facing, finitude-facing way, even on the many days when, you know, your deeply felt psychological state is probably not going to be one of, uh, you know, uh, rapturous uh, acceptance of your own mortality. Well, the political thing is funny because there's another group. There's like, you know, you know what doomsday preppers are like these people who have spent like decades or countless amounts of money or courses like preparing for like when things get really bad. (laughs) There's some irony to me that those are precisely the people who have decided that this pandemic is not real. (laughs) And uh, 
and that they don't have to take it seriously. Like they, they spent their whole life preparing for, 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 for like the event to go into the bunker. And, and now they're, because like, uh, because they're in the, the cult of Trump, they, they, they want to deny that the event is happening. Um, but, right. but yeah, we think about like what would happen if like, if I came face to face with death and you like, Everyone here that's listening did. I mean, just because you didn't end up in the hospital on a ventilator didn't doesn't mean it wasn't a near miss for you. You have no idea how how what what's lurking inside your body. How if you'd bumped into this person on the street instead of that person on the street, or if you hadn't been able to get the vaccine, or but 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 like it, it, you you could run it back in any number of ways, and and we all did. And I guess to your point about can you hold on to these experiences. Perhaps the impact of the near-death experience is fleeting, maybe depending on how powerful it is, you get a year or five years or five minutes. But this is where that stoic idea of memento mori comes in. You should just be meditating on that idea all the time to hopefully keep it. You should be thinking about how fragile uh, life is all the time and thinking about going because it does have at least an ephemeral uh, impact of, of taking you out of your, your little fantasy world. Yes, absolutely. And I think, you know, what the important point here is that we, as you say, we are always all living on borrowed time and a grand piano could fall out of an apartment building as you walk by. <laughs> it, it, what has happened in the pandemic, at least for those of us fortunate enough so far to be sort of part of it but 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 healthy is that we've been shown the way things actually always are in a yes. more vivid and unignorable way rather than things have changed to become more uncertain there's a there's a sermon that c.s lewis gave that i've quoted several times in bits of writing over the last few months where he talks at the on the eve of or the beginning of the second world war about how you know the war, the quote is something like, the war creates no absolutely new situation. Human life has always been lived on the edge of a precipice. Um, and um, I'm sorry, do you, you, do you, I'm trying to, I don't know why messages still come through to my phone. When I it's all right, we can edit that out. Um, uh, life on a precipice. Right, life has always been lived on uh, on a precipice and it just makes the, ongoing human situation more more um more clearly uh perceivable and the point he was making in that uh sermon was that therefore there is no argument for sort of waiting until the war is over to get back to things like the pursuit of knowledge in universities or great works of art and culture sure because if humanity waited to feel secure with respect to the future or even to the present um before doing kind of important meaningful things then uh, we'd just be waiting forever. So I think, you know, these two things go together, understanding that we are always on this precipice and understanding that being on that precipice is no reason not to sort of take risks and, you know, pursue your your right. dreams, to put it in a cliched way, because there's never going to be a different kind of uh, jumping off point for, for those uh, activities. Right. Just as a certain number of people have died in the pandemic, a certain number of people die each year in car accidents and plane crashes and, you know, uh, people who get lung cancer but have never smoked a cigarette in their life. Right. Like there's a certain right. the, the, the number comes up 
for a certain percentage of people every year and a, and a huge percentage of those, those are, are not people at the end of their 4,000 weeks. And right. a lot of them are good people. And a lot of them are people who were doing everything right. And so I think if you're waiting for the actual near-death experience, the indisputable, undeniable one, it may be too late. You know, it may <laughs> be that you just found out you have cancer and it's terminal as opposed to, you know, my brush with uh, testicular cancer at age 22 gave me a new frame of reference, you know, blah, blah, blah. Um, you got to, you got to go seek out that understanding and not let it, you know, sort of, uh, escape from your fingertips. You got to hold on to it. And that's, I, I love, I love that conception in the, in the book. Um, thank you. Yes. No, I think that's, I think it's, uh, right. You, you, you can sort of let it permeate you, I think, in a way that doesn't lead to sort of spending every day in a kind of existential panicky space. Yes. But just sort of adds a level of vividness to to more of the time than it than it otherwise would. Yeah. Well, if you're living life as if an asteroid is coming tomorrow and we're all for certain going to die, you know, you might say goodbye to some people, but this is where you get in the situation where you're like, I wonder what heroin feels like, or, you know, um, <laughs> it, I think, I think the stoic conception of more like just wrap up each day, yeah, you know, like just leave, leave things in a, like, don't leave anything undone, but, but also don't, don't assume that you will not get tomorrow. Right. It's, it's sort of to, to be to a place like I think you want to get to a place where you're you're living as if you're on you're playing with house money. Like Seneca says if you if you go to bed going like I live my whole life, then when you wake up tomorrow, it it puts that day in perspective, which is I'm lucky to be here, I don't have to do anything, but I did get this gift, I shouldn't waste it. You know, I to me that's the healthier way to do it. And that's sort of right in the middle of what we were talking about the people who are terrified of death and the people who are assuming they're going to live forever and aren't in much of a hurry. Right. And it comes down to, you know, uh, just seeing it's, it's that idea of saying that dying every moment, right. It's, it comes down to doing something that counts with this moment, not because it's leading up to something necessarily, not because you're going to be guaranteed a certain future supply of moments, but because moments are valuable in themselves, self-valuable, you know, they're, they're, they're that um, meaning ultimately in life can only ever be found in the time that it that it that it is. I love it. Well, I thought the book was great. It was good to chat again, and uh, I wish you many many more weeks. <laughs> Thank you so much, Ryan. Hey, it's Ryan. If you want to take your study of Stoicism to the next level, I want to invite you to join us over at Daily Stoic Life. We have daily conversations about the podcast episodes, about the daily email. We actually do a special weekend set of emails for everyone. You get all our Daily Stoic courses and challenges totally for free. That's hundreds of dollars of value every single year, including our New Year New You Challenge, which we're going to launch in January. You get a special cloth-bound edition of the best of meditations that we've done. You get a bunch of cool stuff. It's an awesome community. I've loved being a part of it. I've loved getting to meet everyone who's trying to take their study of stoicism to the next level. Love to have you join us. Check us out at dailystoiclife.com. We'd love to have you and join us on this digital stoa that, we, uh, that we've staked out together and get better every day.
Hey, Prime members, you can listen to The Daily Stoic early and ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the Amazon Music app today. Or you can listen early and ad-free with Wondery Plus in Apple Podcasts. In the 1980s, Frank Farian was riding high as a successful German music producer, but he was bored. German pop was formulaic, dull, and oh so white. Frank had bigger dreams, American dreams. He wanted to create the kind of music that would rival larger-than-life artists like Michael Jackson or Run DMC. So he assembled a hip-hop duo, two once-in-a-lifetime talents who were charismatic, full of sex appeal, and phenomenal dancers. The only problem? One very important element was missing, but Frank knew just how to fix that. Wondery's new podcast, Blame It on the Fame, dives into one of pop music's biggest controversies. Millie Vanilli set the world on fire, but when their adoring fans learned about the infamous lip syncing, their downfall was swift and brutal. With exclusive interviews from frontman Fab Morvan and his producers Frank Farian and Ingrid Segui, this podcast takes a fresh look at the exploitation of two young Black artists. Follow Blame It on the Fame wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to Blame It on the Fame early and ad-free by joining Wondery+. Plus. From Wondery, this is Black History For Real. I'm Francesca Ramsey. And I'm Conscious Lee. What do most (laughs) people think about when they hear the words Black History? Rosa Parks, Reconstruction, MLK, February, Black History Exactly, exactly. There are so many stories of Black history that we just are not really talking about or thinking about, especially outside of February. And we are about to flip the script on all of that. Because on this show, you're going to hear a little less In August 1492, Columbus sailed the ocean blue. And a little bit more. She is a heroine to some. As a fighter for black rights, she is a villain to others. Follow Black History for Real on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. Listen everywhere on February 5th, or you can listen early and ad-free on Wondery Plus starting January 29th. Join Wondery Plus on the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Black History.